Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Edward Keating, who is the Deputy Assistant Director for National Security at the Congressional Budget Office. Before that, he was a longtime analyst with RAND, publishing a number of areas including sustainment, shipbuilding, compensation, and more. Edward, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Eric. I have great admiration for what you're doing. Oh, I appreciate that. So can you talk a little bit about the kinds of products that the Congressional Budget Office puts out for uh, national security? How does it help shape the decision-making process? Right. Well, thank you for your interest. Uh, CBO has two branches that deal with national security issues. Uh, One branch is in our budget analysis division. And what the folks in the budget analysis division do is produce cost estimates related to legislation. And so in particular, when a bill is referred out of committee, one of our colleagues on the budget analysis division generate a cost estimate associated with that. The National Security Division does longer-term research related to national defense issues at the request of the Congress or of cognizant committees of the Congress. And so we will do studies that look at longer-range budgetary issues uh, of related to national defense. Now, CBO, of course, has other divisions that do other types of research, non-defense research, but um, the National Security Division, as the name implies, focuses on national security-related and homeland security-related issues. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about one of those long-term kind of analyses that you guys have been doing over the years. So the Navy puts out a 30-year shipbuilding plan pretty much every year. And the fiscal year 2019 plan was a little bit unique because it reflected that change from a 285-ship Navy into a 355-ship Navy, which was the goal. And there was a lot of things that they had to do in order to make that realistic. But the Congressional Budget Office had an analysis of that And it kind of questioned some of the realism, and it produced a very different cost estimate. So I think the Navy needed something like 47 new procurements from the previous plan in order to get that goal. And the CBO estimated it would be about twice as much as the Navy's estimate. So can you explain that a little bit? Well, first of all, I I thank you for your interest in um, our work on the Navy shipbuilding plan. And my colleague, Eric Labs, um, has written, he's the lead author of, um, for instance, the most recent of which was an analysis of the Navy's fiscal year 2019 shipbuilding plan. And Eric also did a series of reports about the 355 ship Navy. And I should note that all of these reports that I'm referring to are available on CBO's website at cbo.gov. Right. So Eric has analyzed the Navy's budget request. You're absolutely right that going up to 355 ships uh, would cause an increase in the procurement costs and the procurement budget for uh, those ships. It is also the case that CBO has a um, different set of estimates as to how much this would cost relative to the Navy's estimates. And in particular, you're absolutely correct that CBO's estimates tend to be greater. Um, Now, I I think one of the questions you asked was, why is that so? There are several issues floating around here, but let me just highlight two of them. 
Uh, number one is that CBO generates cost estimates based on precedent from past production programs and typically with some sort of escalation built on them. And so we would look at, for instance, how much it costs to build a certain class of ship. And when you go to a next class of ship, we would put in an escalation factor based on historical escalation. Um, what typically happens is the Navy, and the Navy's not unique in this respect, the other military services do the same thing. They tend to be more optimistic and argue that, well, yes, in the past we've had cost escalation of this sort, but, you know, we think we're going to do a better job this time or we're not going to have that sort of escalation going forward. And hopefully they're right. You know, we hope that we look back and say, gosh, you know, CB, CBO really overestimated how much that was going to cost. But again, we tend to look at the historical precedent and extrapolate it as opposed to, you know, necessarily accepting you know, what we might view as being overly optimistic. Yeah, one of the other things that I heard from an article that they wouldn't have gotten to the 355 Navy, ship Navy, until fiscal year 2052 if they didn't also extend the life service of the ships. So a lot of these classes are extended between 7 and 13 years. They're asking for at least 45 years out of a lot of the DDG-51 hulls. Um, what kind of effect do you think that has in the long term? Well, you're right. It is certainly the case that part of getting to 355 ships, which I should note is a very ambitious goal under even the best of circumstances, part of getting to 355 ships it includes extending the lives of some existing ships, as you correctly note. You know, a reasonable thing to infer from that is that you're going to have elevated maintenance costs associated with older ships. I mean, CBO recently published a report on the operating costs of aging Air Force aircraft, and the same issue we found, which is, is as aircraft get older, maintenance costs tend to increase. The same is reasonable to think would be true with respect to extending the lives of these ships. By the same token, if you want more ships, to some extent, you're you're almost forced to extend lives because it's very difficult to increase production rate in the shipbuilding industrial base. And so if you want to get to 355 ships, say, by the early 2030s, which I think is the current goal, there is no choice but to extend the lives of existing ships as part of that program of getting to 355 ships. Yeah, you said something interesting there that you and the CBO found that with the age of aircraft, the maintenance costs actually increases. So the older your force structure, the higher your per unit operating costs. Um, I was talking to Todd Harrison last week, and I've been hearing this actually for years back at OSD Cape, that there have been some studies coming around that aircraft age doesn't really correlate very well with uh, higher or lower costs. It just seems that all costs are kind of going up a little bit uniformly. What do you think about that? Well, um, first of all, I have great respect for Todd, and Todd has been a major and important contributor to the discussion of important issues of this sort, and so I um, am glad that you're communicating with him. It is the case, and this is one of the things that Derek Trunke, my colleague who worked on this report on aging aircraft, uh, found. It is the case that one has observed increases in maintenance costs of aircraft 
across different age structures. So in other words, Derek was looking at a panel of data and, you know, some of the middle age airplanes had fairly considerable increases in their maintenance costs, as did some of the older airplanes. And so and it is true that one has seen across the board increases. That having been said, you know, it, it is reasonable, and, and there's other research, both, um, you know, done by CBO and others, that suggests that other things being equal, you know, you're going to spend more maintaining a 40-year-old airplane than you are going to maintaining a 25-year-old airplane, as is also true of ships, that, you know, a 40-year-old ship is going to cost more to maintain than a 25-year-old ship for any one of a number of reasons. Um, it's also the case, and I, and I think your question sort of implies this, Eric, it's also the case that there's a surprising degree of variability across weapon systems, and I'll use the term weapon systems encompassing both aircraft and ships, and presumably this is also true for ground vehicles as well. There's a surprising degree of variability, and I'll, I'll characterize how well these systems age. And so, for instance, in... The A-10 is an interesting example. In the 90s, the A-10 had a lot of problems, and the Air Force had to do a great deal of maintenance on the A-10. However, since roughly the turn of the century, the A-10 has actually stabilized its maintenance costs relative to other systems. And so what's going on is you see other fighters, other fighter or fighter attack aircraft have had increasing maintenance costs in the last 10 or 15 years. The A-10 hasn't. Um, we don't totally understand why that's so, but it may simply be that some of the problems that they had in the 90s got addressed and you've now entered a more stable period with respect to that particular airframe. I think the broader point is it's very tricky to generalize that everybody seems to have their own story or issues that come up. And when we aggregate either ships or airplanes, obviously we need to do so to think about broader term trends, but that may risk obfuscating the fact that there's different individual stories associated with specific weapon systems. Going back to the Navy shipbuilding plan, it seems reasonable to assume that operating and maintenance costs will be accelerating in the near future as the age of the fleet gets older. Uh, I think the FY2020 shipbuilding plan was interesting because it seemed to be the first one that I've seen that actually outlaid not just the procurement profile over those 30 years, but also the operations and maintenance profile. And you see that rapidly accelerating. Did you guys see anything interesting in those uh, operations and maintenance, that new section there from the Navy this year? Well, CBO is currently analyzing the 2020 shipbuilding plan. And so I guess I would stay tuned to some extent that um, we intend to be publishing a report in the medium term about that very topic. I would make a broader point, which is I think it's encouraging that the Navy chose to put O&M issues into its shipbuilding plan. As you note, that was a, a, an innovation that they had not previously had. And as someone who has spent a large portion of my career worried about O&M, O&S type issues, it's encouraging to me that the Navy has added that information. And so um, giving increased attention to operation and support costs um, as opposed to solely focusing on procurement costs, I think is that is a favorable development. So one of the things that the CBO always, every year you guys have a little blurb in your analysis of the uh, shipbuilding plan from the Navy that 
the Navy's using a different type of inflation index to deflate their numbers to normalize them over the long term for changes in prices. Instead of using the economy-wide inflation rate, which is kind of what the Air Force and the Army and all of the rest of um, the appropriations really do with respect to the selected acquisition reports and the like when they're reporting their official numbers, the Navy actually uses a shipbuilding index that's in part developed with the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and in history has tended to reflect about three percentage points higher growth rates than economy-wide inflation, and that largely is representative of faster labor and material price growth in the industry. But then in the future, the Navy says, well, we're just going to assume a half a percentage point growth above uh, inflation. And then so there's this kind of disconnect, and it goes back a little bit to what you are saying earlier about the optimism there. What do you think is going on here, and what effect does this have, the use of price indexes and how they vary? Well, there, there's a lot rolled up into your interesting question, Eric. Um, I mean, first of all, when we talk about you know procurement costs or support costs in you know the 2040 decade, I mean, obviously that's a long way from now, and any sort of projection of a cost like that is going to be very heavily influenced by seemingly subtle decisions about inflation indexes. And so it's just the power of compounding. I mean, when you're talking, you know, one year out, you know, a 3% difference, you hardly notice. But when you start compounding that and you're talking about, you know, something and what it's going to cost in 2045, if I'm using a 3% greater inflation index than you are, and we're talking about something 25 years from now, the power of compounding is such that you're going to give rise to a very large difference. Um, the origin of this is actually really kind of interesting from a broader economic perspective, and that is it is an empirical reality that the cost of, um, I'll call it industrial inputs, but by that I mean you know the labor in particular, people who work in this sort of realm, the cost of industrial inputs have risen at a faster rate than societal-wide inflation for a number of years. And that's what CBO builds into its projection. And as you correctly note, that's what the Navy has put in, at least for some of its current year estimates, and with this inconsistency as to how it's extrapolated. But what is not knowable, um, we wish we knew it, is, is that going to continue? And in an equilibrium sense, in some sense, it can't possibly continue. I mean, we can't possibly have, you know, industrial workers, you know, their relative income always rising relative to any other sector of the economy. And so in some sense, it does make sense to say, well, eventually this would return to societal inflation rates. And if that was so, of course, then it would lead to lower out your costs of this sort of product. But by the same token, we haven't yet seen any evidence of these sorts of um, costs growing at societal inflation rates as opposed to the elevated rates that they've been on. And so that difference, which is almost a philosophical or a theological difference to some extent, is often undergirding very large out-year cost differences or estimates in the out-year costs. And frankly, it's unknowable. I mean, we wish we knew, but we don't really understand, of course, what the world's going to look like in 2045. Yeah, when we were putting out some of the guidance on inflation and escalation, that's kind of where we arrived at, too. It's like, well, when you're estimating beyond five years, 10 years, 
you really don't know. And it seems like the inflation rate is going to be your best guess there. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting, though, is that for the shipbuilding index, we're supposed to be measuring what's the cost of an end item, a ship. But then we're using an index to inflate and deflate that ship based on its inputs, its material and labor rates. And for me, at least, it seems that you can have an output with relatively stable or falling prices, even if the input prices are going up, just because of productivity. And then how are we measuring productivity and whether that's going on? That gets us back to these kind of vague notions of technology and progress and measuring capabilities, and, and that gets really difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult, and, and military ships are particularly difficult because, of course, we don't have an end-item price as to, I mean, we can tell how much, you know, the Navy spent on the contract for, you know, the ship they purchased from a shipbuilder, but there is no market price of the ship um, once it comes out. And so that part of the equation has completely fallen apart. We, we really don't know how much these ships, you know, what a market price of a military ship would be, and so we are forced to rely on the inputs. And as you correctly note, um, it's it's an imperfect or very challenging um, situation to deal with. But it seems to make some sense, I suppose, from a cost estimating point of view, if you're estimating based on what you think the numbers of hours and pounds of steel perhaps is, and if you're thinking of it as just an amalgamation, you know, <laughs> the productivity is just this factor A, right, <laughs> that we don't really, we, we kind of put over to the side. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting about this, and uh, this was a report that I worked on um, back when I was at RAND, um, you mentioned the pounds of steel. It turns out for any military ship, um, the, the steel itself is actually a very small percentage of the total cost of the ship. It's, it's less than 5%. Um, the way to think about a military ship, frankly, is it's a very large computer system that happens to be on water and has steel that surrounds it. But the steel input itself actually is a very small percentage of the total cost of any modern ship. Yeah, I remember Rickover was debating endlessly about, like, you know, the the strength of H, whatever the number was, steel, and, and that quality. And it used to be, like, steel prices, especially back in the big battleship days, that was a major cost input. And now it seems that, I think you're right, most of it is going into these intangible assets, right? It's it's kind of like the knowledge work, it's the software, it's it's not necessarily the steel, even though you, you have to pay money at least to get steel, it's really how do you cut it, right? And, and where does it go? And what's the ultimate platform design is going into? Right, in fact, I was involved with a study back when I was at RAND where we looked at the, the use of what was called the steel vessel index, which is an index that they use for uh, indexing the price of ships. And one of the things that was very paradoxical about how the Navy was using the index at that time, hopefully they don't, I, th I don't know whether they've changed it, hopefully they have, is that the, the steel vessel index actually overweighted the amount of steel. And it had the paradoxical effect of shipbuilders hoped that the price of steel went up because basically the indexing was such that they were being over-rewarded for the price of steel going up because I think the index assumed it was something like 20% of their cost, whereas, in fact, we believe it's less than 5% of the cost of a modern ship. Yeah, you seem to have the same thing going on with the KC-46 there, because I think that contract had an escalation clause, and then that was tied to the producer's purchasing index for 
aircraft parts. Uh, and then kind of Boeing is a big player <laughs> in, in that, and they're the ones who have the contract. So it seems like, yeah, there's if they pay higher input prices, report that through the, the BLS, then they get higher output prices as well, just as a consequence of that. Well, I mean, I think there's a broader point here, which is that it's very tricky to set up contracts. And in particular, you know, you have a notion like, well, we'd like some sort of fixed cost or fixed cost characteristic to it, but then some sort of escalation, which is reasonable. I think we would all agree with that. But this is a case where the details are very important. And if you put in an escalator that is um, poorly correlated or imperfectly correlated to what things actually cause, you can get into all sorts of um, paradoxical situations. Yeah, it seems that these paradoxical situations are really just an artifact of the extreme length of the duration of the contract. And then because you're kind of doing it all in one go, you throw a whole list of requirements that it seems that you need teams, you know, like you can't even prepare one of these proposals with less than 50 or 100 people probably for a major system over many months or years. Um, so it seems that the length of these contracts is having that kind of effect where you need to put an escalation clause, but the escalation clause is based on something that you are in fact affecting in the future yourself. So there's some kind of uh, feedback effects. And I think what Ronald Coe said about this back in 1939 and the nature of the firm was, well, the longer the duration of the contract, um, the more unknowable the specifications and, and the kind of contingencies that will arise, the more likely you are that you want to internalize some of these capabilities, or at least so that was what Coe said. He didn't apply it to defense acquisition when people like um, Oliver Williamson, who was also at RAND, uh, where you were um, many years ago, he, he kind of said, well, yes, logically, that, that is kind of one conclusion. But another way of going about it is really just make the contracts more specified by partitioning them into logical steps and then proceeding incrementally. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, you know, you just mentioned some major uh, luminaries in this field, and I'm not in a position to sort of question folks like Ronald Coase and Oliver Williamson. Um, I guess my broader takeaway on this is defense contracting is really hard, and I have a great deal of admiration for the men and women who, who work in this field. And um, and it's also a, a context, I think, where having experience doing these contracts is, is extraordinarily valuable. And um, one of the things that concerns me, for instance, about the defense acquisition workforce is that there's been a lot of turnover. And when we get into acquiring new weapon systems, um, many of the folks who are um, writing these contracts are relatively inexperienced and, you know, weren't around with the last generation of, you know, buying ships or buying aircraft and these folks have hard jobs, and so um, my, my hat is off to them as they juggle all these competing challenges. Yeah, most definitely, and I think that's something that Oliver Williamson said in his 1968 paper. He was like, well, you know, the private sector negotiators have an asymmetric bargaining status relative to the people on the gov on the government side. Usually you might even have a VP, right, be negotiating some of these contracts. And then you might have on the government side someone who's paid much less and also has much less experience or potentially is coming from a different kind of background where they haven't been a part of that organization for a long time. But I guess if, if I were to put it in more positive terms, I mean, I, I do give a, a great deal of credit to 
the hardworking men and women who do do contracting for the government. And I mean, obviously, it's it's one of these lines of work where something goes goes awry. You know, we we bring these people to task, but it is the case that this country has been able to acquire some amazing weaponry that has helped, you know, this country win military conflicts. And the, the folks who were involved on the government side and on the contractor side in, you know, effectuating those arrangements, you know, deserve some element of credit for what has happened. So, um, I mean, to some extent, it's amazing what we have been able to achieve in light of the sorts of challenges you mentioned. Yeah, I agree. I've seen a bunch of charts where they all basically look like the defense acquisition workforce and contracting workforce flat since, you know, 2000, whereas the number of obligations that they have to go through and the amount of uh, budget authority they have has been skyrocketing. And so you're asking the same workforce to do a lot more with the same amount. And while industry, presumably, they can expense a lot of these um, costs back to the overhead or the general administrative charges. And so, you know, they have more resources they can kind of throw at these things. Now, the good news is that the DOD has uh, acted on this sort of stuff. I know that there have been defense acquisition workforce initiatives, and there are a lot of folks who are working very hard to... um, increase both the number and the level of training associated with the acquisition workforce. But this is something that's just going to take time, that it's not that we're going to solve this, you know, next fiscal year or something of that sort. It's it's a long process of building up and increasing the both experience level uh, and professionalism of, of the individuals who have this important responsibility for the taxpayers. Yeah, I think the uh, FY 2020 National Defense Authorization Act had about 50 pages or more of defense acquisition workforce reform. So I think we'll see, and you're right, like culture changes, institutional memory and all that. It just takes a long time, and so so we'll see over the years. But you hear a lot of rhetoric from leadership that they're focusing on professionalism and culture and that's been some of the argument for Space Force, right? It's like cultural, not necessarily, you know, one programmatic reason or another. So I wanted to move on to some sustainment issues that you've written a lot about. Can you first, though, describe what a performance-based logistics contract is and how it's different from traditional contracting? The theory of performance-based logistics is that you are paying a provider for output rather than for input. And so, for instance, another term that sometimes gets used in this context is power by the hour, where the idea is that I don't care how you maintain the airplane, I need an airplane that flies, and as long as you get an airplane that flies, you know, we're going to pay you. So the idea is that you're paying for performance rather than paying, you know, something associated with the inputs uh, associated with getting performance. Here we've kind of come back to this input versus output distinction. We had it with the costing of systems, and now we kind of have it here in how we want to incentivize sustainment. One of the things that's always kind of been at the back of my mind is the fact that operations and maintenance budgets are really kind of justified based on the inputs. And I've heard, I think it was uh, Bruce Harmon over at IDA talk about O&M as really a pressure relief valve. It's like, here's the money, right? And then do as much as possible within that budget. And then readiness is kind of just 
the output of that. It's it's the result of whatever that budget cap really was. Whereas for on the acquisition side, we don't necessarily budget by contract labor hours or pounds of steel again, right? We budget by what we think of as the output, which is the ships, the aircraft, right? The ground vehicles. But then when you really think about it, we don't really care so much about the system itself, but rather the capabilities and the readiness that it achieves on the back end. So again, we're still thinking about the inputs, right? Financial management has always been thought of in terms of inputs. We budget by organization and object and, you know, allow them relative freedom on the programs. Um, And then those programs are just kind of the logical consequence and you hold them accountable after the fact. But when we think of the acquisition side, we think we're trying to go by output. Performance-based logistics, the whole idea is, we can do something better because we're going to target the output. So what do you think about this difference between input and output? And do you think it might be the case that when you have relatively good information over short time spans, like in the O&M side of the house with a logistics contract, you might want to budget by output because you can pretty well be sure that you, you know what the output you're trying to target is and there's no adverse uh, incentives or different types of alternatives that might have arisen. But when you have a long range R&D project, potentially you actually want to target the inputs and let let the results be an output of that. What do you think about all that? Oh, well, um, I certainly think there's great wisdom in what you just said, Eric. I mean, it is the case that if you're going to use a performance-based logistics contracting arrangement, there needs to be a readily observed and easily measured metric that describes performance. And so, you know, something like mission cable rate or flying hours, that lends itself to that because it's relatively easily measured and therefore contracted upon. But even that has its own problems because, you know, for example, suppose you contracted by flying hours, which would seem like a reasonable metric to evaluate performance of an airplane. Well, presumably you would need to have some sort of combat exclusion, for instance, or some policy to alter how the contract is set up or how the payments are being made if suddenly, you know, you're flying this airplane 10 hours a day rather than one hour a day. Um, So it gets into the details of how this contract is set up and how you do it. You know, getting to RDT&E, I mean, if you're talking about the long-run development of a weapon system, particularly involving, you know, technology that is, you know, nascent or isn't even yet developed, it would be almost impossible to do an output-based contract for something like that because we simply don't know what the product is going to look like. And how will we know whether we succeeded or not from a contracting perspective? So at that point, I think you're forced into input-based, you know, sort of cost-plus cost type contracting by the nature of the uncertainty as to the product. So, you know, what you're able to measure and how you measure it certainly ends up driving how you set up the contractual structure. Doesn't the Department of Defense kind of have these key performance indicators and all of that measured performance that they need in the requirements ex ante of milestone B. So it seems that, you know, what they're trying to do is be output oriented, even at the very early stages. You even see program type line items back in the budget activity 6.1 to 6.3. So the early S&T activities, they're still, you know, it's not just necessarily, you know, here goes money to like uh, directed energy in general, right? It's 
what are the specific projects that you're working on and then presumably those contracts are reflecting what are the outputs of those contracts rather than you know an input based we're going to fund packard said something interesting back in 1971 he said something to the effect of well you know if we uh give each design house roughly x million dollars then every two years we'll get a prototype and we'll just see what those prototypes are and if the the teams aren't cutting it then we find another team what do you think about that well, that's a, a different type of defense industry than exists right now um, because, for instance, in many realms, there's not multiple design houses that right. you're really at a situation where in many key defense sectors, you're down to either a monopolist or perhaps a duopoly. The other part, of course, where the analogy falls apart is that the scale of money involved with some of these things is just so much more vast than, you know, the few million dollars that, you know, Mr. Packard was talking about. So, I mean, I understand the theory of what he's trying to do, and certainly in a perfect world, you know, you might have a very large number, say, of prospective, you know, aircraft manufacturers and have them, you know, build prototypes, but I'm not sure that accords with the world that we live in today. So you put together some great data on readiness and the cost per flying hour of different tactical aircraft. And that was in the uh, acquisition review journal. So we'll definitely put up a link to that. Can you describe what the trends we've been seeing there? Right. Well, thank you. And and I appreciate you uh, reading that report. Um, I should also note that there was a, that the report that was in the Acquisition Review Journal was actually based on a CBO report entitled uh, The Depot Level Maintenance of DoD's Combat Aircraft. Yeah, what we found um, were two things, or I guess two sort of broad facts. I mean, number one, and this goes to a point you raised earlier, Eric, is that we looked at various types of fighter and combat aircraft, so A-10s, F-15s, F-16s, F-18s. There were some common ties across the aircraft, and in particular, one of the things that we found was that each of those systems has had diminishing availability as they've aged. And so this is sort of, um, you know, everybody gets older, I guess is maybe part of the, the message here. But perhaps what was even more intriguing in, in our work in that analysis was that the rate of degradation of availability varied fairly considerably across the airframes. And I mentioned earlier the A-10. The A-10 is an interesting system. The A-10 had a large number of availability problems in the 1990s, but has stabilized and really has had fairly stable availability for about the last 15 years. Um, The other side of that is the F-18, the Navy's legacy Hornets in particular, that the legacy Hornets have had very sharply diminished availability um, since 2000, roughly. And so if we had been talking in the 1990s, we probably would have looked at the Legacy Hornets as being a laudatory system that had done very well availability-wise, and the A-10 would have been the converse. Today, it's the opposite, that the A-10, in many respects, relative to you know, approximately similarly aged weapon systems, is probably had high, is having better availability than the other systems I mentioned. So I guess what I took away from this is that, you know, everybody gets older, but the rate at which your performance decreases is apparently quite different across weapon systems. When you say that, it makes me think that the A-10 
was developed in this competitive prototyping. They took several years of test and evaluation um, in order to get it into production. The F-18, actually, I believe it was the first uh, weapon systems contract to actually have requirements metrics actually built into the development contract. So they were actually trying to right, make the sustainment really a performance indicator there. But the F-18, you could say it was not actually prototyped if you actually think the YF-17 was different enough from the F-18 that it seems like a new program. Do you think that just having a prototyping program and building in reliability and simplicity and actually taking a long time, it might seem like we'll arrive at technological states faster if we kind of leapfrog and get them into production. But just taking your time through testing might seem to be a good way of actually arriving at reliability, simplicity, and over the long run, perhaps superior sustainment. Yeah, actually what we... um focused on in the report we did, that, that depot level maintenance uh, report, was somewhat different. And in particular, what we focused on, we looked at a metric of uh, depot level hours per flying hour um, as at least a crude approximation of how much is this airplane being maintained. And one of the things we found was that in the 1990s, the legacy Hornets, and so by that I mean the C and D variants, the the E and F variants are a different airplane in many respects. Um, The legacy Hornets in the 1990s had comparatively low levels of depot maintenance per flying hour, whereas, for instance, the A-10s had very high levels of depot maintenance per flying hour. But then what happened was particularly in the aughts when the Navy started thinking about extending the lives of the legacy Hornets, they ran into an enormous number of troubles. And in particular, they found that these airplanes required much, much more deep structural double-level maintenance than they had anticipated. And so this was a case where the evidence, of course, is not definitive, but it seems suggestive that perhaps in hindsight, if the legacy Hornet had received more maintenance in the 1990s, it perhaps wouldn't have been in as adverse a condition in the aughts and in the early part of this decade as it proved to be. With the A-10 being exactly the opposite, that the A-10 received a lot of maintenance in the 1990s, much a very disappointingly large level of maintenance from the Air Force's perspective in the 1990s, but then has done very well since then. Oh, that's very interesting. That seems to make some sense. There was actually, I think, when I was looking at your figures, there was, in the depot level maintenance, there was just this huge increase. It seemed like a one-time step function in 2009 time frame. What was going on there? Are you speaking of the Legacy Hornets particularly or in general? I think it seemed like it was across a couple of different platforms. Yeah, well, the Legacy Hornets at that point were entering into a service life extension program. And so that would drive up the maintenance a great deal. But it is the case that all of these systems, um, with the exception of the A-10s, in fact, have had increasing levels of devil maintenance as we a- as they age, which is what you expect. I think the increase associated with the legacy Hornets was particularly pronounced because of at least what was in hindsight under investment in the maintenance of the airplane a decade earlier, or 15 years earlier. So that seems to bode well for preventative maintenance, right? Well, I think so. In fact, you know, the subtitle of the CBO report we wrote, the subtitle was Insights for the F-35. I mean, you know, now we have the F-35, and I guess one of the interpretations of, you know, our analysis we did of the earlier generation airplanes is that the efforts that you take to 
do depot level maintenance on an airplane when it's relatively new um, can prove to be helpful when at some point in the future, particularly if you want to extend the lives of these airplanes, you certainly hope that you've maintained it well up to that point. Yeah, I saw recently that, at least for the F-35B model, the airframe life expectancy went from 8,000 uh, flight hours down to something like 2,000. I think the F-35A is in a much better condition there. But I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between depot-level maintenance, what we were talking about, and flight line maintenance, and then whether you have a feel for whether the F-35 actually requires more depot-level maintenance than flight line and what that might mean? That's a very good question. Um, when we talk about depot-level maintenance, there's maintenance that actually has to go on in the depot, particularly because you have very elaborate pieces of equipment that you wouldn't have, you know, just at a base somewhere. Um, but then there's also the human capital associated with the men and women who maintain the airplane. And it may be that the function could be performed at a base somewhere, but that the maintainers at the base, the military maintainers in particular, may not be experienced enough. And so what will sometimes happen with airplanes is that the airplane will be depot-coded, but what they've actually done is they've flown the maintainers from a depot out to the base to work on the base there. So it's coded as being you know, in depot maintenance, but it's actually occurring on the front line in a literal sense. So there's both the equipment you need to maintain it, which is usually very expensive and is kept at the depots. And then there's the human capital expertise that sometimes, particularly with um, you know, mod programs, for instance, you may be able to do those at the flight line, but that you need the expertise of either the depot maintainer or perhaps a contractor to do that. And so therefore you would still code the airplane as being in depot level maintenance re in reference to the expertise that's needed as opposed to the physical facility. Okay, so that was your first question. And then, I'm sorry, what was the follow-up? Oh, the follow-up was, oh, do you think F-35? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is a very interesting question. And this actually gets into one of the key pieces of equipment on the F-35, which is the, which is, they call it ALICE, the Autonomic Logistics Information System. What ALICE is supposed to do is provide diagnostics that, will predict or will indicate problems far earlier than a maintainer would find it. And so the theory of ALICE is that you won't need as much depot level maintenance because you'll it'll be more preventative and it'll be more proactive. And so, you know, long before, you know, a problem has reached the point where it's easily even visible to the human eye, um, it's been flagged and therefore maintenance has been done proactively. That's the theory. The reality is, in fact, um, former Air Force Secretary Wilson had a famous quip on this that she said, you know, no Air Force maintainer is calling their, their daughter Alice anymore. <laughs> and what she was referring to is that Alice, at least as of, you know, the last I've talked to anyone in the Air Force, Alice simply does not work in the manner in which the Air Force hoped uh, or that Lockheed hoped. And so one of the things that we wrote in our report about this is a source of uncertainty about F-35 maintenance is what's going to happen with Alice and can Alice actually help you? And um, 
hopefully it will, but it's it's a work in progress and it's 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 a challenge that both the Air Force and the Navy and the prime contractor are are dealing with to get this system to work in anything resembling the manner in which they hoped it would. Yeah, I think I heard the uh, acquisition chief for the Air Force, William Roper, say that they're actually trying to do some in-house software factory, is what he says, work and deliver capabilities from the Air Force to actually make Alice work. Well, yeah, I mean, this is interesting because the F-16 has had organic software support throughout its life. And so you go out to Hill Air Force Base and there is a whole building devoted to F-16 software and the people who work in there are civil servants or government employees. And that's how the F-16 has maintained its internal software. Now, the F-35 is a far more complex piece of equipment. And Alice is just one part of an extraordinarily complex piece of software. But it is the case that the DOD and the program office are struggling with the appropriate boundary between what the prime contractors provide in terms of computer support on the F-35 versus what is organically provided. So I've heard this argument over the years that, you know, sustainment costs are growing and we have these military requirements, so you just have to fund the O&M to at least get to some level, and that it's crowding out investment, and that, you know, some of the RDT&E programs or, or the productions are actually getting hit from that. And if these trends continue, if we're going to have a global presence, you know, you're just going to have to fund more O&M. It seems like in the FY20 budget, a lot of that's actually hidden under OCO. But uh, do you think that this is a long-term trend and that will actually crowd out rdt and investment? It seems like Congress is pretty willing to raise the top line to, to make sure rdt and gets done for new programs like artificial intelligence and hypersonics, for example. But do you think we can break this vicious cycle in any way? How can we keep maintenance costs kind of from accelerating and providing that structural problem for us? Well, let me provide a somewhat different perspective as someone who has spent most of my career worried more about O&M issues than about acquisition issues. Obviously, they're complementary, but I think Wood could turn the statement around and argue that rising acquisition costs have crowded out necessary O&M. And so... In other words, I, I don't necessarily accept the logical premise that, oh, it's because O&M costs have grown that therefore we can't get all the acquisition we want. I mean, another way to look at it, which I think is just a mirror image, is, well, because acquisition costs have gone up so much, we've under-maintained some of our existing systems. And so, again, these are two sides of the same coin, but I, I guess I somewhat um, question the underlying premise of this. I mean, my perspective is these are very expensive weapon systems that the taxpayer has chosen to invest in. And therefore, you know, skimping on the maintenance of these things doesn't strike me as necessarily an appropriate thing to do. Yeah, I tend to agree with you exactly there. I think that to a large extent, operations and maintenance and even production is a logical consequence of what you did in R&D, right? Like I... I think it's something like 10% of a weapon systems funding is kind of an RDT&E, and then the bulk of it is going to be in those back-end 
um, production and then especially sustainment sustainment's usually cited 50 to 70 percent of, of weapon systems life cycle costs but it seems like it's the opposite way around when you think about opportunity costs so through RDT&E, you're actually absorbing probably 90% of the opportunity costs of that system. And then you're kind of more or less locked into what's the spares and repairs going to be, what kind of manufacturing processes are possible to produce this thing. So to a large degree, you know, the sustainers are eating what the developers put into it. I think that's a good point, Eric. So we've talked a little bit about the acquisition problem of sustainment, but is there a way that we can kind of increase the reliability of our weapon systems more generally? Is that by making sustainment a requirement early in the design contracts? Is it simplicity of design or is it something else? Yeah, it's a good question, Eric. And if there were easy answers, I'm sure that they would have long been implemented. I guess to some extent, my perspective is that one needs a certain degree of modesty as to you know what we expect out of these weapons, how much we use them, and also how far into the technological frontier are we taking these systems that um, you know the the good news is that this country has developed and our allies have developed some amazing technology that has saved you know American lives and helped us win conflicts. But it comes at a cost. It comes at a direct acquisition cost, as you mentioned. And also these systems um, tend to be difficult to maintain. You know, they're small in number. We don't achieve economies of scale on the maintenance side. And so some of it, I think, is we are so focused on the technological frontier and acquiring weapon systems upon the frontier that we lose sight of the fact that maybe a somewhat lesser system that we had larger numbers and more experience with, you know, might in a long run sense be a better approach. I tend to agree there. It seems that a lot of times when we create a new program, well, in order to justify it and to get funding for it, you basically have to say it's going to surpass the legacy system in every single category. And potentially it's using a new structure of airframe, right? Or potentially a new hull for like the DDG-1000. You're doing something brand new and you're still expecting it to be higher performing right off the bat than the legacy system. But we, we tend to hear, especially from uh, Clayton Christensen, his kind of model of innovation, you know, the disruptive innovations, the new things, they tend to actually start out with worse performance. But you have to work on them kind of incrementally. Perhaps they're, they have a niche um, capability that they solve, and that kind of keeps them going. But their trajectory in the future might be relatively high. So for example, when we did Polaris, the Polaris missile tests, the first ones, you're not getting the full range, the full accuracy. They were only kind of getting 30%, 50%, and they kind of incrementally built up to what to what they need to get to rather than, oh, well, I'm not ready to go through test and evaluation because I don't have 100% of the capabilities. And if I fail this test and evaluation, then potentially that reflects poorly on my career, that reflects flex poorly on the program. We don't, we're not really sure what that's going to mean for Congress. I mean, you just used a very curious phrase, and that is, you know, quote-unquote, fail test and evaluation. I mean, to some extent, if you don't have some failures in test and evaluation, you're not doing test and evaluation correctly. And so I, I think the issue shouldn't be whether you, quote-unquote, passed test and evaluation. It's, you know, what have you learned as a result of what you went through in test and evaluation? And certainly, 
pernicious if we expect weapon systems to always, you know, get 100%, you know, results, 100% favorable results in a test evaluation regime. I mean, that that would suggest that either the tests were too easy or, or something's going on. I mean, we should expect and we should tolerate failure, particularly in the test and evaluation realm. Yeah, so through the 60s, we didn't really have a test and evaluation office either in the services or in OSD. There wasn't really someone responsible. In 1970, they kind of started setting up some of that infrastructure. In the 80s, it became a huge deal, right? And that's when they set up in the office of the Secretary of Defense, the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation, which was kind of just a, a carryover from what they had in the 70s. But still, there's a, there's a greater emphasis on it. And it seems like we never really turned the corner on that. What do you think needs to happen for us to kind of get test the things early as possible? Or are they already doing that? And these are just very hard problems. And you're just going to run into problems anyway, later in test and evaluation, you're going to have things slip. Well, I should note that um, an alum of CBO, Mike Gilmore, uh, worked in test and evaluation during the Obama administration. And so uh, this is uh, an area that CBO is proud of the work of our alum in, in that realm. Um, as you say, Eric, I mean, these are hard problems. And I, I guess the the one kernel of insight I would provide here is that we we shouldn't crucify people if they have adverse results in test and evaluation because that's what it's there for. What you don't want is adverse results when you're in a real military conflict involving, you know, military, you know, military personnel and um, allied and American civilians who you're trying to protect. And so that's when you don't want to have failure. When you're in a, a rigorous testing regime, you should expect to have failures. And then the issue isn't whether you failed, it's the issue is what you learned from the failures. And so I think the mindset sometimes that, you know, we, we need to do well and we need to pass, we need to get a 100% score in test and evaluation is ultimately a pernicious one. I think almost everybody throughout the department would exactly agree with what we're talking about here. But I read a testimony from the 1980s, uh, the general's name is slipping my mind, but he basically said that the reason that people kind of fly through operational tests and evaluation or they try to create specifications, they'll have their contractors help them create specifications for the system that are easy or not realistic potentially. Uh, he said the reason that they do that is because you've already built in a plan, right? I'm going to enter operational test and evaluation at this time, and then I assume I'm just going to do well in that six or one year, six month or one year time frame. And my procurement budgets are waiting on the other side of that. And if I don't get there, then we have a big problem in the program, and we need to restructure the budget, and that's going to cause a, a new trade-off action within the services, and there's going to be some problems to pay. So you know, the budgets are waiting for me. If I don't pass this test then we're going to have to go through a lot of bureaucratic problems to kind of get that uh, budget restructured. So even though everybody at the test site understands this is just going to take some time, we're learning here, we've got to iterate some, we never really expected to you know, pass it on the first try. Some of the institutional factors surrounding the budget actually kind of force it to go in that direction anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not here to uh, attest to the validity of that argument, but I mean, to the extent it's true, it's very sad. I mean, because then why are you doing test and evaluation if it's going to create such a nightmare if you get what should be a non-unexpected outcome of at least sometimes failing these things? 
in my opinion, it seems that we've had a lot more test outcomes or capabilities actually become classified, right? So DOT and E, their test report on the F-35, Pogo was saying, was about half or so what it was in previous years, and a lot more things are classified. It seems that, to me, if programs were performing quite well, then they would actually be very happy to show some of these parameters, maybe not exactly what top speed or a turn radius might be, but you know they would be more willing to kind of advertise. And you sometimes see that from the Air Force uh, when things are going well, but I would expect that they would be doing it much more often and be much more forthcoming with information if things were going well. Do you think that some of the decrease in the public information coming out is kind of a reflection of not hitting the mark or is that just that's a real concern we can't we, we shouldn't be letting the rise of china and R- russia you know kind of understand what our weapons capabilities are i mean i think there's a broader issue here about what is and what is classified in the department of defense and my experience has been that there's a great deal of information that's classified that someone who reads the new york times would know And so I I think there is reason to have the skepticism that you express. And certainly if one observed a program that suddenly had a large-scale change in the amount of information it was providing uh, to the negative, I think it's a reasonable supposition to do what you did, which is to infer negatively about how that program is, in fact, performing. So is there something you'd like to direct our attention to in acquisition reform or just the process in general that doesn't seem to get enough play today? My apologies to Edward. His microphone went offline, but luckily we had a backup. He responds by putting a plug in for his former RAND colleague, Mark Laurel, who has done a lot of work on acquisition history, including studies on whether joint programs save money and another one on international spares pooling programs. We'll return to the conversation. And what Mark has done is he has learned a great deal about the history of military acquisition, particularly since the Second World War, and things that have gone on in programs like, you know, F-14, F-16, and F-15, but then even programs that preceded that. And I always found Mark to be a great resource because so many of these issues that we're talking about have cropped up before and you know efforts to coordinate internationally for instance this is not new f-35 is of course trying to do something that other systems have tried to do as well Um, and i i think that there is a history related to defense acquisition that's available in the public domain and i think if we learned uh, we mine that history to a greater extent, I, I think it would contextualize the, the challenges that we face now to a greater extent. Yeah, OSD Historical Office is coming out with an acquisition history series. They only have the, the 50s and 60s versions, but they're going to they're gonna be coming out with the 70s, 80s, and Phil Schieman's doing the, the 90s, so that should be very interesting. I can't really stress enough from my own perspective that I agree with you that history has given me a lot of perspective, just even in my my own job, just like understanding how cost management systems, for example, were implemented in the 60s. And you see those artifacts today because a lot of these companies were around back then and they've kind of incrementally updated their material inventory systems and the like. And you kind of see that a lot of the problems that they were struggling with back then 
we're struggling with today. And it seems there's a little bit of an institutional amnesia that's going on to some degree when we revisit the F-35 program looks a lot like the TFX program to some degree. They got it working, right? The F-111 did have some pretty good capabilities, especially in all-terrain following radar. Um, So it provided special capabilities, but, you know, we see a lot of the same kind of problems with the joint programs and potentially the Navy was more willing to break away back then when they realized that the airframe just didn't suit the requirements. Potentially, it's yet to be seen, right, whether the Navy, um, their investment in the F-35C will really pan out. It seems like their availability rates are kind of the worst. Well, the B model as well, but the F-35A seems to be a lot more stable. It seems that the uh, the sustainment issues aren't, aren't as great as the C. Yeah, I mean, the, the point you touch on, Eric, is a, is a good one. And in particular, I think when we think about F-35, it is very important that we segregate the three variants. The A is a fundamentally different airplane that faces a fundamentally different challenge. I mean, that, that's a really challenging thing to do and to maintain an airplane, to land it on an aircraft carrier, to deal with tail hooks, to deal with salt water. None of those sorts of things anybody involved with F-35 has to, A, has to deal with. And so I think as time goes forward, it is important, just as, for instance, you know, with F-15s, you know, the F-15E is an extraordinarily different airplane than an F-15C or D. Um, with the Hornets, you know, the, the F-18C and D is very different than the E and F F-18s. And the same is true with F-35. I, I think it's important, and I suspect as time goes forward, that the different variants will exist in their own realms to a much greater extent, that they're very different airplanes. I thought it was interesting that you said earlier that you see a huge variety of uh, costs and, and performance for on the airframes, depending on the actual airframe. So the average is not actually telling you very much about the population. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about that and whether... I'm pretty sure some of the VAMOS systems, they actually kind of go down to hull number, tail number, or even for in the Army, you can see like individual uh, vehicles driving around. I was wondering if you've ever kind of actually got to that level of detail and seen what it actually meant. Uh, we have um, at CBO looked at some tail level data, particularly on the Air Force side. Um, you do see at the tail level data that different airplanes perform differently and in fact one of the and i'm talking about within a class of airplanes and in fact one of the things that pretty clearly goes on is that at specific installations there are favored tails that get a disproportionate number of the flying hours so you look at a specific installation a specific month you can tell that you know there's some airplanes that are sort of sitting by themselves, maybe in maintenance, or they're, maybe they're awaiting parts or something. They're hardly flying at all, and then you've got the star airplane that's you know flying a hundred hours in a month, and so there is a great deal of heterogeneity in terms of the usage of airplanes, even within a particular type model series. Um, but it's also the case to go back to the earlier point that when you look across type model series, that it's amazing the different challenges that different airplanes have had. I mean, some of them have problems with their engines, some of them have problems with the tails, some of them have issues with landing gear, some of them have issues with internal structural struts. It's funny. It's you would think um, that you know all airplanes would have the same 
basic categories of problems, but I've always been struck by the variability in terms of the sort of the challenges that different airframes face. I wonder if I can just throw out a possible theory there on, on that variability. So potentially today we see, for example, that if you have high concurrency, that especially you see this with F-35, they're making a lot of changes through the production sequence. And so you just like, the, the staff is learning, you have new staff, apparently for the F-35, right? They have to staff up a whole bunch. So down there at Fort Worth, they've been hiring like crazy and it just takes time. So their learning curve actually bumps up a little bit, right? Like um, these things are gonna cost potentially a little bit more than you would have expected if you had the same uh, relative staff. And these differences actually manifest across the operations and support side and there's slight differences, there's variations, and, and you see that artifact um, come up. But it reminds me of Freedom's Forge. I don't know if you read that. But it was an excellent book on World War II production. Oh, and, okay, in, in Detroit. And... Yeah, exactly. It was. A, I would highly recommend that to our, our listeners. But there was... Um, an incident at Willow Run. They were trying to they were trying to build a bunch of B-17. So they built up a, a new factory, and they just never really got to their production rates. Um, the Air Force kept making changes incrementally, and so that would manifest in higher prices at the production line because you could never set it up in, in a specific way and and then just run it. And each aircraft would be modified to some degree, and that would show up later. And then what? Uh, Phil Knudsen, he came in and he said, look, we're just going to put them into outfitting at somewhere else. So you're just going to have a stable design and you can outfit them somewhere else. And that brought the cost down a little bit. So I wonder if you can have, I mean, this goes back to whether you're jumping into concurrency. If you have a stable design, run them through a specification on the platform, and then you could potentially modify them elsewhere um, with potentially some new payloads or what have you. Uh, that could lead to a more stable kind of specification and potentially better operations and maintenance. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an alluring possibility. I mean, I, I guess, you know, one of the issues, of course, has to do with how many airplanes you're producing at all or how many units you're producing at all. And so, you know, you need to get up to a fairly sizable production rate before you can even talk about such a thing. And so, for instance, on the ship side, you really don't have that because the gestation period is so long and the technology is evolving that even if, you know, we call them a certain class of ships, the later ones almost by definition are going to be fairly different than the predecessors. I mean, with respect to F-35, I mean, F-35 is going to face an issue in upcoming years about what they're going to do with the early tails, and in particular, um, you know, one possibility that, for instance, they do with the F-16s is that they will retire the early tails fairly prematurely, at least in a numeric sense, and basically say, well, these folks were basically prototypes of the sort, and we ultimately got to a more stable production run, and we sort of keep those, but on the other hand, it may be that the airplane is so valuable and so expensive that they're going to have to keep, you know, early production units, um, but those, as you correctly note, are tougher to maintain because they're different. They're, you're going to either have to catch up their technology to the earlier, to the later airplanes, or even, sometimes you can't even do that, that they may simply require a different type of maintenance than the later airplanes. And so that's going to be an issue, I think, one of the many issues that the F-35 program office is going to have to deal with is 
what they're going to do with the early production airplanes and can you get rid of those things at some point and just use the later production airplanes. I wonder if you have any information on this. I heard that the F-35, for example, a few years ago, they raised the sustainment, the total life cycle sustainment cost to something like a trillion dollars. And I think that reflected a $25,000 cost per flying hour figure or something in that range. And the Air Force has been saying that was kind of their target, but now they're saying, you know, we want to get to $25,000 per flying hour. They want to get there by 2025. And I recently heard uh, there was some debate that, well, it's currently around $44,000 an hour, and they don't really expect it to come much down below thirty-seven or 33000 It won't get to the 25000 number. So when when people talk about, oh, well, it's going to be a trillion dollars in life cycle ONS, well, does that actually include this, this new expectation that it's going to be in the 30s rather than the 20s in terms of cost per flying hour? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Um, the, the longer answer is, first of all, um, numbers like a trillion dollars are <laughs> impressive in many respects. But remember, you're talking about a, a weapon system that, you know, is going to be in service sort of long past the lifetime of you or I. So, I mean, you know, that's a trillion dollars over a very long period of time. The other point, of course, that I always ask people is, well, is that a trillion in constant dollars or in then-year dollars? And, of course, one of the things that the DoD often does is that they'll sum up then-year dollars. And so, you know, that's that's kind of weird if you're talking about a trillion dollars where some of those are in 2060 dollars and some of them are in 2020 dollars. So what exactly does that mean? In constant dollars, say in 18 dollars, the numbers I've heard are, are... they're still very, very large, but they, they tend not to be quite as large as that. Um, the other caveat I would raise is the cost per flying hour metric is itself a peculiar one or a flawed one. And in particular, um, if we just deconstruct the mathematics, it's the cost divided by the total flying hours. And so if you really want to cut the cost per flying hour, you fly the airplane more. Um, and so, you know, because it's a ratio, and so most, the way that maintenance is set up, or any sort of airplane is set up, is you have fixed costs and you have variable costs. The variable costs, of course, are the fuel and maybe the incremental maintenance, but a lot of the maintenance on any airframe, you're gonna have to do anyway, whether you're flying this thing an hour a day or 10 hours a day. And so the trick, it's not really a trick, I mean, the known phenomenon that reduces cost per flying hours to fly airplanes more. but. You know, you don't necessarily want to do that either. In other words, you know, if, if what you're doing is sort of ultimately taking years off the back end of an airplane because you're flying it more so as to reduce the cost per flying hour, I mean, that seems peculiar unto itself. So I, I guess I would just sort of raise some red flags about both the total dollar value figure you mentioned and then also um, the use of the cost per flying hour metric um, as a sole way of thinking about the affordability of an airplane is, is a little peculiar. Yeah, I think those are both really good points. I actually, I don't think I remember what, you know, I, when they, when people were saying $1 trillion, I, <laughs> that's always the question you have to, you have to ask, you know, what, what kinds of dollars are these? And that's something we, we tried to get across there at OSD Cape a lot was label your charts. I want to know, is this then your dollars? 
is this base year dollars. If you're telling me it's base year dollars, you also have to tell me, did you deflate it with an inflation index or were you deflating it with a special index or something like the uh, shipbuilding index, right? So I need to know that because if you're deflating with a shipbuilding index, it's going to look a lot flatter. And that was something we actually see in the uh, Navy's shipbuilding plans for procurement on the one hand, right? they deflate using the shipbuilding index. So it looks flatter. So to us, it looks like procurement's not really not accelerating too much. And then on the O&M side, when they were actually showing the FY2020 plan the first time, they use that in then year dollars. So you saw the profile of the O&M going up rapidly, but if you actually normalize them in the same way, you might start seeing a very similar pattern. So I think that's a really good point that you always have to look out for. So do you have any last thoughts for us? Any ideas at the top of your mind or new project coming up? Oh, well, I mean, I just want to emphasize how challenging acquisition problems are. And I guess I applaud you, Eric, for delving into this and to, you know, talking to folks uh, who know a lot more about these issues than I do. These are ultimately very hard problems. Um, so, for instance, the Virginia-class submarine is thought to be a success, an acquisition success story, despite various challenges that it faced. And then one of the follow-up questions you always ask is, well, why did the Virginia-class submarine, you know, apparently be a successful program? Well, the F-16, the F-16, I think, is widely conceived to be a, a very successful program. And why is that? And unfortunately, or what I've found in my career is that oftentimes it comes down to specific individuals, specific managers, and we say, oh, well, you know, Jane did a great job, you know, managing the Virginia-class submarine, or Bob did a wonderful job managing F-16 procurement. And that's probably all true, but unfortunately, of course, that's not very generalizable. And so, you know, what we would love is to have lessons and say, well, you know, if only we could sort of harvest our successes and learn from them. And um, unfortunately, I, I don't think there are easy answers because if there were easy answers, you know, the, the very hardworking, smart people associated with this would have long since implemented them. Edward Keating? Thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you. I admire what you're doing, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.